When you need to refuel between meetings or running errands, or you just want a healthy snack that squashes your hunger, wonderful pistachios, which come in a variety of flavors and sizes, by the way, are the perfect choice to fill you up and keep you going throughout the day. Wonderful Pistachios is also a good source of protein and a zero-guilt snack. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, guys, which gives you over 10% of your daily value. And with flavors like salt and pepper, sweet chili, and seasoned salt in the shelled variety, options like chili roasted, sea salt, and vinegar or jalapeno lime in the no-shell variety, you're sure to please your taste buds while snacking healthy. So check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more about how these little green wonders can power up your day. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. 25% off Alliant Naturals site-wide any supplement you can think of just for the Keeping It Real listeners. All you have to do is go to aliannaturals.com and pick out anything, anything you want from multi-collagen peptides to organic grain superfood powders, pre and probiotics, krill oil, you name it. We got you covered or they got you covered. You just enter the code JILL, J-I-L-L, 25, JILL25 at checkout and you will get 25% off your entire order of anything in the store site wide. So check it out. All right, my beautiful babies. The fitness app has a free trial. I want you to check it out. If you've got the meal tracker app, the food planning app, the running app, the yoga app, the meditation app, the breathwork app, stop right now. Stop the insanity because the fitness app is a one-stop shop. It's got it all, guys. It customizes your meal plans based on your food preferences and your personal health goals. It customizes your workouts based on where you wanna train, your fitness level, your fitness goals, whether you're in the gym, at home, outside. You have a baby coming in, it's prenatal fitness. You wanna get crazy with Ryan Clarenbach and do his beast mode program. From yoga to kickboxing, we have you covered. There are meditations in the app. There's sleep support with Jim Donovan, self-care with Jamie McFadden free trial. Just go to the App Store, whether you're on Android, Google Play, the Apple iTunes Store. It's there for you. Download it. Give it a try. I think you're gonna love it. Welcome to Keeping It Real, Conversations with Jillian Michaels. All right, team. Today's conversation is with Dr. Robin Chutkan. This is our fourth in the series with Dr. Chutkan. She is a world-renowned gastroenterologist, multi-time New York Times bestselling author. And we have had her on about a host of things all related to gut health, because as I'm hoping you guys have caught on here, not to be redundant, but gut health is linked to every aspect of our wellness. Because those trillions of microbes in our gut are impacting everything from your cognitive function 
to the function of your immune system. And we've been touching it all across the board, but today we're going to look at Dr. Chetkan's birth plan. And I touched on this years ago when I wrote, yeah, baby, but the science has changed. Um, so we were, we were ahead of the time then, but it's evolved even farther now, obviously. And you're probably thinking birth plan, the hell does that have to do with microbiome? The answer is a lot. So I'm going to speak personally real quick to give you some reference here. When my son Phoenix was born, right, to my, to my uh, co-parent extraordinaire, Heidi, she needed to have a C-section. And because of the things that we did and the things that we didn't do, because we weren't well aware at that time, mind you, this is 11 and a half or 11 years ago, he ended up getting all kinds of fungal infections and ear infections. And to this day, I believe this is part of it, has a compromised immune system. So I'm not going to explain all the mechanisms for why that happened, because I have Dr. Chicken on today to tell you why and what you can do about it to ensure you and your baby have the safest delivery possible and you set your kid up for success down the road. Um, and if it's not you, you're not pregnant, forward this one to a friend. It's going to make a monster impact in the health of their kiddo. Trust me. All right. With no further ado, we're jumping in with Dr. Robin Chuckan. Doc, welcome back. This is, are you starting to feel like I've tapped your bloodstream? I mean, I'm just. I I'm loving this regular <laughs> thing. This is great. And, you know, you're so fun to talk to about this stuff. So this is fantastic. Well, I have to say that people are loving all of your great advice. And today, as mentioned, we're going to be talking about your birth plan from your book, The Microbiome Solution. I'm going to start out right here. And I kind of throw out some thoughts as to why I know this is such an appropriate topic with regard to microbiome. But can you explain the connection for the audience? Sure. And listen, if you've not heard this before, don't feel bad. I went to medical school and I never learned any of this in med school. So if you're out there listening and you're like, hmm, I didn't know this, like you are definitely not alone. So where do we get our microbiome from? We get it primarily from our mothers initially, and then we get it from the environment. We get it from the food we eat, the soil we're exposed to, et cetera. But that initial moment when we sort of, I mean, we're still alive in the womb, but when we come out into the world, is arguably one of the most important moments in our life because as we pass through the birth canal, we swallow a mouthful of microbes. And if you've ever seen a live birth, maybe you've seen your own or you've seen a video of one or you've been present when somebody's giving birth. But one of the things you notice with a vaginal delivery is that as a baby's head crowns, as it you know sort of starts to come out through the vagina, the baby's head turns posteriorly. And that is intentional. The baby's head turns posteriorly to face an area called the perineum, which is that area between the vaginal opening and the anal opening. And it's kind of a, it's a microbe laden area. I don't like to use the term dirty because these microbes aren't, you know, bad. They're actually really good. essential yeah. for, for good health. Right. But that area, as you can imagine, between the vaginal opening and the anus is there are a lot of microbes hanging around there. And so the baby's head turns to face that area so that it can swallow a mouthful of microbes. And those microbes that it swallows become 
the founding species for the baby. So that's like the, you know, the the skeleton army that's going to grow into a full-fledged microbiome by the time you're 18 years old. And really by the time you're about three years old, it's going to, we're going to really start to see a lot of additional species. When the babies are born, the microbiome resembles the mother's microbiome. And then as we grow, you know, through age three and all the way up to about 18, 21, when the microbiome is fully formed, it starts to diverge and it starts to not look as much like the mother's microbiome because you start to recruit your own species through things like, okay, you have a dog, you're exposed to the dog, you're out in nature, or you're living in a very, you know, glass and concrete environment, not exposed to as many microbes. What are you eating? All these different things environmentally start to make a difference. But here's the deal. Babies that are born vaginally are colonized with the mother's bifidobacteria species. Babies that are born via C-section are colonized with hospital-acquired Staphylococcus aureus, which sounds as not good as it is, right? And so what we see, Jillian, is that that difference in C-section versus vaginal delivery makes a huge difference for four big things, for autoimmune diseases, for asthma, for allergies, and for obesity. Increases a risk. Now, that doesn't mean that if you're born via C-section, you're going to be obese. I mean, my daughter, who's now almost 18, was born via C-section. She doesn't have autoimmune disease. She doesn't have allergies. She's not obese and she doesn't have asthma. So, you know, but we did a lot with her diet when she was little. You know, she was on all these antibiotics, et cetera. So I became very aware of this difference. And so it was a lot of lentil doll burgers when she was little and smoothies and stuff like that. But you know, I want people to know that that that's not sort of like an automatic, like you're going to, your kid is going to have these things, but there is an increased risk of these four big things, asthma, allergies, autoimmune diseases. And we know there are over a hundred different autoimmune diseases and obesity. And so when I counsel my patients with Crohn's disease, for example, which is an autoimmune disease, I really push them. I'm like, look, everybody should be trying to have a vaginal delivery if you can, for these reasons, but for you having an autoimmune disease, with potentially a genetic component, and maybe your child is going to inherit some of those predisposing genes, we really want to try and do, right. you know, a vaginal delivery. Vaginal but but there's there's it's a difference, right? It's not the same. So of course, C-sections save lives every day. Some people need a C-section because a baby is breech, or there's failure of the labor to progress, or there's a medical issue, whatever it is. But it's also stone cold truth that many, many, if not most of the C-sections being done now are unnecessary. They're being done for convenience. They're not being done to save the mother's life or the baby's life for some medically important reason. You know, this idea of a scheduled C-section. Well, you know, my partner's going out of town on this day and I have my reunion on that day. So I'd really like to have the baby at this time. And here's the thing, a process that takes you know, nine months, 40 weeks, really, from beginning to end for that full human being to be cooked should not be rushed, right? Like, why would we rush that that. by a week, a day, an hour? This is like an important thing. That baby is going to come out when they're fully cooked. Now, there are times when, you know, you've gone way past your due date. And again, there are medical reasons why, but, you know, the baby will declare when they're ready to be born, when they are fully cooked, you know, that mucus plug is going to pop open, the water's going to break and things are going to start to happen. So, you know, we we medicalize things of like, oh yeah, we can just, you know, 
slash your uterus open and take that baby out at a convenient time. And the problem with this is there is definitely a price we pay on the back end. And the price we pay is that that baby doesn't have the opportunity to become colonized with those microbes and that, you know, they're missing out on arguably the most important moment of their life, which is that initial colonization. So, and again, I, you know, my baby was born via C-section and it was, had a lot to do with how I got interested in this field, her, you know, C-section birth, tons of antibiotics at birth and throughout the first few years of her life. And so I don't want to give anybody the impression that if your baby was born by C-section, all is lost. Right. Right. Of course. Particularly if you have an ideal way forward here. There's an ideal way. Yeah. That's why we're not, we don't have a zipper across our, you know, lower abdomen. (laughs) That's when we have a vaginal opening. Right. You know, um, I want to back up for one second, Doc, and then I want to jump to that because Phoenix was a C-section baby, my son. And not I didn't have a C-section. My ex did. She carried him for all of the like no choice, saving lives, wasn't going to happen kind of a thing. And I have seen this child struggle as you and I have talked about his gut health. And I'm like, this is what the doctors are saying. This poor kid has had, I mean, it's just been one thing after another with his immune system from chronic ear infections, gut problems, and he's an athletic little dude, right? Like he's, but I am convinced it is because we got off on the wrong foot and then needed all these antibiotics after the anti- that. that. That's my daughter's story. My daughter's story was the C-section, the antibiotics. You know, first of all, they give everybody antibiotics at C-section. They don't tell you because when right. you sign the general consent to have the C-section, it includes all the other stuff you need. Like if you need to have, you know, more intensive surgery, if you need to have antibiotics, whatever. And so they give the antibiotics prophylactically, right? As a preventative measure. Oh my God, I didn't realize it was prophylactic. Yeah, they, not because uh, there's infection. I mean, we oh, don't need antibiotics like, to do surgery. That's why we have sterile technique. Always, okay, I've got a question outside of this then because I've noticed that like sometimes you get a surgery and it's like, here's Keflex, right? They just give it to you and it's so, so important and they'll freak out if you don't take it. Then my wife had her gallbladder out and I'm like, did they give you antibiotics? And she's like, no. And I was like, what do you, what do you mean? They got a rod in your stomach. You didn't get antibiotics, but I get like a cosmetic procedure and I get antibiotics, which I never take. But uh, what is that? It, it's is that totally so- dealer's choice. I mean, we have oh, guidelines, clear guidelines and, and the guidelines, like in my field in gastroenterology, which I helped write when I was on a serving on the training committee for the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, each year we pulled back with the antibiotics because it became clear the data that the risk of the antibiotics was greater than the risk of what we were trying to prevent. So if we're trying to prevent, and you know, colonoscopy is an invasive procedure, right? So if we're trying to prevent something like endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart valves, what we found is that the risk of getting Clostridium difficile, a serious infection from the antibiotics, because when you give the antibiotics, kills off a lot of the healthy bacteria, the not so great bacteria like the Clostridium difficile that's there, but in low levels now starts to multiply, kind of like a yeast infection. But the risk of things like Clostridium difficile, which can be severe, people die from C. diff infection, people lose their colon from C. diff infection. C. diff. The risk of C. diff was much, much higher than the risk of endocarditis. You know, they used to give people, a lot. The, some of the patients I see with the worst gut problems are people who were getting prophylactic antibiotics every time they got their teeth cleaned. 
So, oh, you know, shoot. once, twice a year, they were getting a hit of antibiotics. And now, again, for things like mitral valve prolapse, which is a very common congenital, meaning you're born with it, um, abnormality of the heart. But it turns out mitral valve prolapse does not put you at risk of endocarditis when you get your teeth cleaned. But for decades, we overtreated. It was like, oh, just in case. Now we know that that kind of prophylactic antibiotic use is really problematic. Another set of patients who really struggle, women who get frequent urinary tract infections and are counseled by their OBGYN to take antibiotics every time they have sex. Now, oh depending on how active oh you are, that, it could be seven days it's a week or it could be a couple of times, you know. Yes. Every time. And, you know, there are other things you can do, like voiding after sex can help. You know, there's so many other things, but to put somebody on a strong wait, wait, antibiotic. Doc, what's voiding? Peeing? Oh, oh peeing. Urinating. Okay. <laughs> to empty the bladder. <laughs> Okay, got it. I'm sorry, Doc. Go ahead. Go ahead. And there are things like, you know, there's certain lubricants that women use that can make them prone to UTI. So there's so many other factors, right, for that okay. beyond using an antibiotic. So we see that a lot of these prophylactic, just in case preventative tactics, like it might be great for the problem you're trying yeah. to solve, but it's going to create problems down the road. So it may prevent you getting a UTI that day. But what it often means is that when you do get a UTI, you now have a resistant organism that's resistant to all the antibiotics because, you know, it's found a hack around this antibiotic you keep taking. Right. So this kind of preventative antibiotic use is, is a big part of what's leading to all these resistant superbugs that we're dealing with. And if we don't get a grip on this, we're going to be thrown back into the dark ages of Where you antibiotics know, don't work. pre-1920s before we had penicillin. We're going to have nothing. We're going to be so screwed. Okay. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to go back. <laughs> we are going to go over Dr. Chutkan's birth plan in detail for you guys. We'll be right back with Dr. Robin Chutkan. Your business was going great, but now your team is buried in manual work. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,025, one. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. Close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash Jillian. That's netsuite.com slash Jillian to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash Jillian. All right, team. You know, I love Skims underwear because I've mentioned them and have been wearing them for, gosh, a little over a year now. So I finally had to try their bras, and Skims has delivered yet again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give. Even the underwire bras I wear all day are so comfortable, I barely even notice I'm wearing them. Whether it's the weightless scoop bra, the fits everybody bra, the plunge bra, the fits everybody t-shirt bra... I always get them in sand, so you never notice them. Super comfortable. Love them. Wear them nonstop all the time. 
Shop Skims Bras at skims.com now. Available in 62 sizes, 38 of 46H, plus get free shipping on orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know I sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop down menu that follows. Okay, we are back with Dr. Robin Chetkan. And for more on this, guys, get her book, The Microbiome Solution. That's the appropriate one, right? For this topic of conversation. Yeah, that's it. That, that it was, this is book number two. And until this book, book number four, the antiviral gut, the microbiome solution was my favorite. But if, if you're really just wanting to hone in on the microbiome, the gut microbiome, how to rehab it, how to approach illness without taking a ton of antibiotics, this is definitely the book to check out. So I'm going to just jump in because I've, I've read the whole thing here and I want to go step-by-step as you do you start out with, quote, pregnancy goals. So talk to me about what this means and what these are, Doc. Sure. And I'll just, I'll just tell people out there that I have a lot of friends who are OBGYNs. We call ourselves sort of the below the belt doctors. You know, I'm in the back end <laughs> with the, the colon. They're in the front end with the female reproductive organs. But this birth plan caused a lot of a lot of my OBGYN friends were not happy. They're like, you've just made our lives very complicated. Women are coming in and they have all these annoying questions and they want to do all this stuff that's like really so. inconvenient. But this is simply, Jill, this is the birth plan I wish I had had 18 years Same. ago. I when wish I, I had you know, this when Phoenix was born. I saw yeah, this and we I was were like, just talking about that. a bitch. And it's like, had only I known then, but it was 11 years ago. Yeah, we just didn't know. And even still, you know, what's really interesting now is I think a lot of the well-informed consumers know more than the doctors about this stuff. So so the goal with this, and I, you know, I have this disclaimer that I tell people to let their doctor know that if you're the patient, you're saying to the doctor, I understand that certain emergency or other medical circumstances may not allow for the accommodation of the goals listed below. But I appreciate your consideration in helping me achieve my objective of a natural childbirth. So, you know, you just start with that so that you're saying like, you know, I understand we may need to deviate from this plan, but this is what right. I would like. And so the pregnancy goals, I'd like to avoid antibiotics and other medications during my pregnancy unless I need to be treated for a condition that threatens my health or the health of the baby. Because guess what? Almost all these drugs pass through the cord and they're getting to your baby. They're getting to your newborn baby or not even born baby. But pain medication, doc, like I-, I Yes, I, like, I know. Uh, and then that leads to the C-section, right? And then, and then second okay. pregnancy goal, as long as my baby and I are healthy and there are no medical contraindications, I would like to go at least 10 to 14 days past my due date before consideration of inducing labor. Now we were talking about this at the beginning, right? This process that takes, you know, 40 weeks. Should yeah. this be rushed? <laughs> You know, the baby will let you know when it's ready to come out. Now, I always want to say, like, obviously, you got to discuss this with your OBGYN. I'm just a lowly gastroenterologist. I'm not an OBGYN. There may be things going on. There may be baby maybe getting too big and distressed. That was what I was going to ask you is like, what happens if the baby's getting too big in there? And then you're kind of like, you're screwed and you're going to need a C-section. Well, that's why you got to you got to have that discussion. Right. But lots of times, first of all, the conception date is a lot of the times inaccurate. Oh, right. And so, you know, you may think right. that you're so far, but your your actual conception date might have been a little bit inaccurate. So you definitely want to be monitored in this situation, but it's not like, you know, not every baby reads a textbook and knows they're supposed to come out in exactly <laughs> nine months. Some bit, you know, just like <laughs> everything else. Some people need a little more time. 
I needed a little more time to finish my run today because I was super slow. You know, you know, just like clear me off the course. Like, okay, you got to stop running. You've been running for an hour. You haven't finished your six miles. Like off you go. Right. So you have to allow for different paces. Babies grow and develop at different rates. So, um, okay. So that's the pregnancy goals. Okay. Labor goals. And I will be very honest with you. My labor was hot. I remember my husband driving me to the hospital and saying, how does it feel? And I turned to him and I was like, like, I'm going to die. And so again, like everybody's labor is different. I literally know women who are like, oh, that baby slipped out. I barely realized it. Right. So bullshit, dog. But people have an 11 out of 10 and some people have a one out of 10. And when... When that needle went in my back, I was like sweet relief for that epidural. I wanted, I mean, in fact, I had Sydney, my now almost 18 year old at Georgetown, the hospital where I was on faculty. So a medical student came in and started to prep my back for the epidural. And then the attending anesthesiologist, who's somebody I knew because I had worked with him in the endoscopy center while he was providing anesthesia for my patients, he comes and like bats the medical student away and is like, oh no, this is Dr. Chutkan, like VIP patient. Like you can't do her epidural. But let me tell you, Jill, literally, if the person cleaning the floor had said, let me do your epidural, I would have been like, sure. I wanted it. <laughs> I was needle like, in my spine. Yes. For, yes. Oh God. Get me something yeah. to get, yeah, Heidi you know, to control suffering. this pain. But I'll she tell fought you it, what. Doc, and she was, she was in sobbing and it, it was like, it couldn't have gone more wrong because Phoenix was huge. She like, she had all of this on your, on her sort of, you know, like, and I would say, Heidi, I just don't think so because I could tell how big he was getting in there. <laughs> yeah. And my ex is like five, one 95 pounds soaking wet. He was nine pounds. Oh my gosh. It was never coming. She was 10 days late. It was a disaster. So, cause he was so big. He couldn't drop to break the water, dilate the whole thing. So the long and the short of it is that she was in so much pain that I'm like, I'm going to get you an epidural. Like you're, you're dying. It went on for 20. So it was, it was bad. Like you're describing. Yeah, it was, it was really bad, but here's the thing. I mean, I think like, unlike height, like I think I could have gone without the epidural and I think I could have had a vaginal birth, but here's the thing. Had I known it's just about the information, right? So you can make a good choice. Had I known that that epidural would lead to a C-section, that the C-section would lead to antibiotics, that all the antibiotics would lead to me having a super sick kid, hospitalized for infections, all of that, I would have been like, hell no, I'm going to just, you know, give me, give me like, you know, a piece of board to bite on or something. I'm going to suck it up. So, you know, it's not right or wrong. It's not that like, it's wrong to have an epidural or it's right to have a natural labor. We want, woman to have the information so they can make an informed choice. And even people like me, I'm a physician. I went to med school. I was not given in the information, neither by my team, nor was I taught it. So this is why I wrote the birth plan so that you can have all the information, understand the risks and benefits and make a good informed decision. Yeah, It's a cost benefit analysis. And the thing is like, absolutely. Heidi knew a lot of it, right? Like she did not want the epidural. She wanted a natural childbirth. What we did not know was the microbiome component. That was yeah. not common knowledge. And we did not know that the antibiotics were prophylactic. So it's like, yeah. well, you just had your whole gut shut sliced open, better take the antibiotics. Like we did not know that at that time. Yeah, they're they're preventative there. And you know, you Jesus. can wait and say like people, you're, nobody's doing a C-section and sending you home that day. So 
perfectly reasonable to follow the vital signs, look at the white blood cell count, fever, et cetera, look at the wound and see if somebody having an infection. But a lot of these practices, people just started doing it and it just continued. It's not based on good scientific inquiry some of these prophylactic antibiotic things. So, you know, in terms of labor goals, it's a okay. long list, but here are the highlights. Got it. I'm trying to have as natural a birth experience as possible with invasive procedures, tests, medications, and other interventions initiated only when medically necessary. So then I talk about, you know, the IV, the urinary catheter, the lights, please keep the lights dim and noise to a minimum for a calm birth environment. I would like the opportunity to be out of bed as much as possible during labor. That helps, right? If you can walk around. Oh, of course. Um, yes. I would prefer not to undergo internal vaginal exams unless they're medically necessary. I talk about the monitoring. I prefer not to have my membranes broken unless medically necessary. Again, because that process of, of breaking the membranes can sometimes create infection. If induction of labor is necessary, I would like to try walking, changing positions, you know, before being given any medications. I will ask for pain medication only if I'm too uncomfortable to handle the pain. Please don't administer it without my consent. I would like to utilize massage, relaxation techniques, shower and whirlpool tub to help manage my pain. Yeah, good luck with that where I was. There's none of that happening. Yeah, that wasn't in a traditional hospital. And, and the thing is, like, a lot of women will opt for that or like water bursts and stuff. But then the question becomes, what if something goes wrong? Yeah. And you got to get to the hospital, you know? But here's the I thing, Jillian. Like, this is where the risk assessment is really key. And of course... Right. Things can go wrong just right. even in somebody who is not high risk. But if you so, are a high risk pregnancy, either because of a medical condition you have or something that's developed during the pregnancy, that's not a great idea. But if you look at the UK, for example, they're starting to return to home births, not to save money because they have better outcomes because the what? women who are giving birth at home are having better outcomes, fewer episodes of infection, et cetera. So the reality oh, it's not is, even sterile at home. There's, there's dogs and cats. And yeah. No, like, well, you know, you still need a trained medical profession. You know, I, I don't see. recommend you I having a baby at home by yourself. Right. Like, right. And they can sterilize I mean, the environment. You know, definitely get a midwife. You. I do I all of that. But and here's a beautiful thing about using a midwife, too, is that they all have they all typically have privileges at a hospital. Um, so if you're at whether you're doing a home birth with a midwife or you're at a birthing center with a midwife, they are not, it's like, oh, things are going south too bad. You know, they have relationships with the hospital. It's sort of like having a baby in a hospital where there's no neonatal intensive care unit, NICU, right? Like one of the, one of the best hospitals in town here doesn't have a NICU, but if the baby is in distress, they transfer the baby to a hospital with a NICU. They don't just say, oh, well, we don't have a NICU, too bad. So, <laughs> you know, there's definitely, there's yes. there's plans you can make around that. And it's not for everybody, but I wish, I mean, if I had a redo, I would do it very differently. I would yeah. have probably gone to a birthing center, used a midwife, had a doula, and I would definitely have tried to go without that epidural, without the Pitocin, that induced labor that I think caused or contributed to me ending up with a C-section. And, and here's the thing with a C-section, your baby's missed out on that important passage through the birth canal and being colonized with those important founding species. Doc, don't say it. Don't say it. I actually want to come back and jump into that. Like what okay. happens when you have Perfect. no choice? Because 
That's exactly what happened to Heidi. And she's to this day, she's still pissed about it. And we had, we had one of our worst fights ever. And she's like, you made me have a C-section. I'm like, are you nuts? You had a nine pound baby in your body. And the nurse came up to me and was like, okay, she's got a fever. You're at hour 28. His heartbeats are regular. And she didn't dilate past a four. It's time. Like there, yeah. there was going totally nowhere. Time. We were going yeah. nowhere. And then I called the doctor and I'm like, uh, you got to come. And she's like, I got one more trick and this is it. So if you're us, right, you're the most well-informed up to now and the most well-intentioned as I believe all moms are, and you're stuck now. Now we're here at the cesarean. I want to come back and talk about what to do. So we'll be right back with Dr. Robin Chutkan talking about what to do if you need a cesarean, breastfeeding goals, and listener questions. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, we are back with Dr. Robin Chutkan talking about her birth plan from her best-selling book, The Microbiome Solution. Um, all right, you guys heard it. We're cesarean section. You're there. You're, it's happening. Now what? Hap, what do we do? So and let me be very clear. It, right? Let me be clear because, you know, I was, I was bad-mouthing C-sections a minute ago. So let me just be clear and say, as a physician, I am thrilled that we have techniques like C-section that save lives all the time, the mother's life, the baby's life, all of that. So let's just say that again. But I am a strong advocate for more judicious use. There's no way you can tell me that one in four women in America need a C-section. That's nonsense. There's no right. medical reason that 25% of the births in this country, and, and in some places, almost one in three, are happening via C-section. That's crazy. That's sort of like what happened yep. in gastroenterology when the surgeons were able to take the gallbladder out through a much more minor surgery, laparoscopic surgery versus an open cholecystectomy removal of the gallbladder. All of a sudden, the number of gallbladders being removed like shot up like 3,000% because they had an easier, more convenient surgery. So we've seen the same thing with C-section. So we know this is an overused technique surgery that doesn't, you know, that shouldn't detract from the fact that it can be a life-saving surgery. So the most important thing I want you to do if you're contemplating a C-section is to really have an in-depth conversation with your doctor about the risks and benefits. And is a C-section actually necessary? Okay. That's the first thing. Now to get to your question, let's assuming it is, you right. really need this C-section. What can you do? Well, uh, Dr. Marty Blazer is an infectious disease doc at NYU and his wife, Maria Domingo Belez, 
they do incredible work on the microbiome. In fact, they have a new documentary out about the microbiome. I don't remember what it's called, but they're a Dynamo husband and wife research team. And she's one of the researchers who looked into this idea of vaginal seeding. So what is that? It means that if your baby is born via C-section, you take some gauze, not doesn't have to be sterile because we're going down to the perineum. And I already told you, yes. this is full of microbes. So you take some gauze right. and you, you literally sort of wipe the perineal area between the vaginal opening and the anal opening. You kind of soak the gauze in those secretions. And then when the baby comes out via C-section, you pat down the baby's head and face. Now right. to sort of approximate the baby coming through the birth canal. Now this is a really, really controversial technique, but the data, a lot of it from uh, parts of South and Central America where the C-section rates are even higher than they are in the US, believe it or not, there's a lot of good data that shows that this can make a difference. But again, you have to sort of know what you're doing, right? I mean, you don't know, don't want to be literally putting poo in the baby's mouth. This is not right. the goal here. Yes. And you 100% need to let your team know ahead of time, because I'm telling you, if I had done that, all of a sudden, you know, took some gauze and stuck it down between my legs and started wiping my baby down, I think they would have called security on me. Like, you've got to TCFS, tell people like, yeah. what the goal is, right? <laughs> what is happening? Um, you, can't, you can't just start doing that. Understood. Yes, you got to put and, a video and there for it, people um, to know how it to do it. can be, again, the data has shown a lot of the studies that it can be really helpful. And then like the skin to skin contact, that's really important. That first contact to try and put the baby, you know, not all necessarily wrapped, but just a baby naked skin on your chest, on your skin and make that contact the breastfeeding, all of this stuff. But what do they do in most hospitals? So they, you know, they pull the baby out of the uterus and then they sterilize the baby. They like have the Pfizohex and they're like wiping everything off. And it's like, no. Oh my God. That's exactly what happened with P. And I was just like, okay, you know, I didn't know any better. Did not know. But even though you didn't know, and here I am, you know, highly trained medical professional, I didn't know. Didn't it feel kind of, I feel like there's a sense of you're like, ah, you know, Heidi, Heidi wanted it all the way. I just was like, to be honest, I think personally, a lot of this stuff scares me. This scares me so much. And I think I like a pain of a 10 and it's needle in the back and this and that. And this has always scared me. And I think Heidi going into that situation, I was a little afraid for her and I could tell Phoenix was too big for her because we had a donor that was like six foot four. And, you know, this is, yeah. So I was like, shit, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be a big baby. I don't know if we made a mistake here. Um, anyway, I, I was so kind of thrown off and then it was such a long and brutal process on her and she was suffering and it was 28 hours. I don't think I was thinking clearly at all doc. And a lot of this information was not out there. It wasn't so known. Is, I mean, the doctors didn't what, know, patients didn't know. And here's the thing, Jillian, again, now I'm, I'm not like, oh quiet, God. but from what you're telling me, it sounds like there was some inevitability to this, right? This oh, train was, was moving. It, we were in a, the station. It, it just, yeah. size wise, things were not, things so were I not matching up. No to the antibiotics that they loaded her up with. Yeah. I could have said, no, don't do that. Put him right on top of her chest. Don't clean him off. I wish I had known all of this. Cause then I, I could have mitigated it. And that's where anybody listening, like we're Dr. Chuck Kent's telling you like, try for this, try for that, try for this. If you end up here, you know, these are the options 
right? And that's what I think is so important is you're giving people all the tools to ask the right questions, to have the right goals, to know what to do when it doesn't go the way you want it to go. You know what I mean? So yeah. And again, to not, to not judge or make anybody feel bad about a decision they made, whether it was a decision that had to be made for medical reasons or whether it was just a decision they made because they felt that was the right decision. Like I never want anybody to feel bad about that, but I want to give you the information so that you can make the right decision. And just on a funny note, my husband was a C-section baby and he's, and he's a big guy. He's like six, three and you know, and he's always like, well, could I, could I be reborn? And I'm like, no, you cannot go back there. (laughs) And then really crazy story. I was giving a talk at my daughter's school last year. She's a senior in high school. And it was like the thrill of my life. Her biology teacher invited me to come and give a talk about the microbiome. And I'm giving the talk. And so these are seniors. And after uh, one of the students comes up to me, a young lady, and she said, can I ask you something, you know, in private? So I'm sure. So we sort of huddled to the side of the classroom. And she's like, well, so, you know, does oral sex help the microbiome? You know, like it's if you're- question. Yeah. And I, I mean, after the in- initial, like, hmm. so she's like, yeah, I mean, cause you, she said to me, you know, you talked about this area between the vagina and the anus being full of microbes and the perineum. Yeah, and so, sexually, you know, would, great would, would, would licking that area be helpful? <laughs> and, and I was, I mean, I have to say, I was a little taken aback as, you know, these are talk writers. But then I realized like, this is such a clever question. You know, these kids, like they've got their thinking caps on, man. So then I explained that, you know, the microbiome, like as we get older, it's a little more, it's a little harder to make these changes, but like all of these things, environmentally, et cetera. And I was, I mean, the question just really sort of haunted me. I was like, wow, somebody should really do that study. You know, You do that study. (laughs) I think you should. Well, because you can hear, by the way, I mean, you can hear that you can get a bad infection if things are, you know, if you're having, sorry guys, if you're having anal sex and then you yeah. go to vaginal sex, you can get a really bad infection. So it's like, okay, well, there's clearly microbes down there doing their thing. That's, I think that's actually kind of a genius question, which one of the questions I have for you is with human resident strains of microbes, um, how do I replenish them without probiotics? So it's like skin on skin. Now I'm thinking like oral sex is a great question with my baby breastfeeding, breast milk. Like Absolutely. how can you yep. get that, those human strains, if you're not su- uh, supplementing? Yeah. And I love that because we have very little evidence that a probiotic in the average person really moves a needle, but we have great evidence. For example, breastfeeding. The third most common ingredient in breast milk is something called HMOs, human milk oligosaccharides. And HMOs are completely indigestible by the baby. Because they're not there to feed the baby. They're there to feed the baby's gut bacteria. So HMOs, the baby's bacteria feed on these HMOs and breast milk. And that helps to grow the community. And it helps then that the bifido and the other founding species to be able to repel more problematic bacteria like staph on the mother's nipple. So it's unbelievable, right? And this is, here's the thing. Like when my breast milk dried up after six weeks, I was grateful that there was formula, but I'm aghast now. When I look at what's in the formula, I was like, oh my God, I wish I had had access to, you know, get some breast milk from somebody or some milk bank because I look at what's in this stuff and I'm like, are you kidding me? And my kid was really sick, but you know, that the, pediatrician was like, oh yeah, this is what you do. You know, this is fine. 
Um, and we know that no matter how much we find, okay, we need DHA, we need this, that, all these different substances, we keep adding to formula, you're never going to find a formula that's the same as breast milk. That's just a reality. Right. Now, that statement yeah. doesn't mean that formula is bad. It's just that breast milk is better. So if you yes. can nurse, you should. In my case, yeah. my breast milk dried all the way up. I mean, every herb and tea, it was not coming back after six weeks. So that was what I had available. But, you know, in that case, again, I didn't have a choice. But if you're a woman out there and you have a choice, what you need to know is that there are things in breast milk, not just HMOs, but things we haven't even identified Wow. that we know are essential. That's why they're in there. You know, our body yes. is custom making this for the baby and you're not getting the same effect with formula, right? So if you are one of those people who actually has a choice, like there's a superior choice. Okay, Doug, about the surgeries, um, not babies. So uh, prophylactically, is there any surgery uh, that, that somebody would have, essentially they're asking where, it isn't prophylactic, like open heart surgery versus a gallbladder surgery versus a boob job. No, I have not had a boob job. Although I would love one if I wasn't worried my body would reject me. <laughs> I'd be the first one in the room, guys. But but um, so how do people, because a lot of people are going to have a procedure at one point or another. Yeah. Um, is there any difference or should we wait to see if there's an infection there before taking it or the, what would you there, recommend? There are circumstances and the circumstances have to do both with the procedure as well as a person's personal history. So I would never say off the bat that nobody should have prophylactic antibiotics because if you have a particular condition that predisposes you to infection, you may need an antibiotic for even a minor uh, surgery, right? So I give you an example. In our gastroenterology guidelines, we removed the recommendation for people who have mitral valve prolapse, which is just an abnormality of the valve. But in for certain procedures, if you have a prosthetic heart valve, if you have an artificial valve, you might need antibiotics because an artificial valve is going is going to be much more prone to infection than your native valve. Same thing if you have a hip replacement or knee replacement for certain procedures. You may. So there's two things that we take into account. What is the okay. surgery itself and what is the risk of the surgery? And then what is your condition that may put I you see. at increased right. risk? The other situation is if there's sort of soilage. So for example, if you have a perforated gut, if you you know, develop a hole in your intestines and you now have feces leaking into your abdominal cavity, you already have a contaminated area and you're going to be at risk for sepsis, for serious infection. You need right. antibiotics. If you have, you know, like you might be having surgery and you have pelvic inflammatory disease, you might need, you know, so again, you have to look at the risk of what's your yes. background, your history, okay. and what's the risk of the surgery. But again, it's a conversation you need to have. So you need to, first of all, you need to ask the doctor, am I going to be getting antibiotics, you know, with that one eyebrow raised? Because sometimes <laughs> they don't tell you. And then if you, yeah. if it's like, yes, then you need to say, well, why am I getting the antibiotic? Like, what's the indication? And is this prophylactic or do I really need it? What's the risk of an infection? Sometimes they're like, oh, the risk I of infection see. is less than 1%. Oh, God. And you're like, okay, the risk of infection is less than 1%, but maybe the risk of C. diff is 14%, you know? Right. And I again, even that is very personalized. Yeah. So a lot of the patients I see, they have complex autoimmune diseases. They've been on tons of antibiotics. 
we are very focused on preventing more antibiotics because it's going to make their condition worse. There are other people out there walking around. They're super healthy. They've taken very few courses of antibiotics in their life. One extra course isn't going to be a big deal. So again, it depends on what the background noise is in your microbiome based on your history and your habits, et cetera. I thought this was a great question and I know it's a long answer, but can you, or maybe it's not, maybe the answer is just no, Jill. Um, can you optimize gut health for weight loss specifically? Because you know, you've talked about metabolism and microbes and we've heard about that, right? Like, oh, quote, skinny people. And I, I hate to use that term, but people of a smaller size who eat a bunch of shit and don't actually get bigger, um, they'll say that, oh, they've got like a certain kind of microbiome. And I think that, well, that's sexy. What are those microbes? Like, what do they have that I don't have? Um, is there a way to do that? Or is it just like a good for the goose, good for the gander conversation? Yeah. Well, there, there are differences, right? For sure. We know that the exact same meal that has the same macro and micronutrient, you know, um, ingredients and, and capacity, literally the exact same meal, you can give it to two people and they'll extract the energy harvest, meaning the calories they extract from it will be different based right. on what's going on in their microbiome. And we know that microbes can speed up uh, motility through the gut so that there's less opportunity to absorb calories. We know that microbes can affect insulin production and other hormones that affect fat storage. Microbes can even consume some of the calories themselves, right? So we know that, you know, 150 calories or 550 calories of the exact same food is not metabolized the same by different people. There, right. The microbiome is mostly built, not born, but there, there are some genetic differences. So for example, there's a bacteria called Christensenalacea. And Christensenalacea is associated with leanness. And if you see, there's some families where everybody's just a stick, right? That's my ex, yeah. But here's the, the thing, the when you yeah. drill down, I like to use the Esselstyns as an example. Do you know the Esselstyns? Um, Caldwell Esselstyn, he wrote the book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. His son, Rip Esselstyn, um, wrote the book, The Engine 2 Diet. So Caldwell Esselstyn is a very renowned cardiothoracic surgeon from the Cleveland Clinic who became a vegan like in his 60s. And the whole family, they're wonderful, are vegans. And they're all tall bean poles. And you could say, well, they probably have high levels of Christian senilacea. Yeah, but guess what? They eat a high nutrient, high fiber, vegetarian, vegan diet. So it's, re I mean, it's rare yes. that you see a whole family of people where they're all string beans and they're all eating, you know, Big Macs and Doritos. Like that's unusual yep. because here's the thing. If you have a large population of healthy bacteria, like I talk about Fecalobacterium prosnitzii all the time, F. prosnitzii, my favorite bacteria, protective <laughs> against cardiometabolic disease, <laughs> diabetes, colon cancer. My it's favorite one of bacteria. The, yeah, I no, like it's it. one of the bugs that is constantly fermenting the fiber, Jill, into short-chain fatty acids for yes, the immune system, the blah, blah, blah. Postbiotics so, everyone's trying to Yeah, sell. yeah. So like in our big study on the microbiome and COVID, what they found, researchers at UMass Amherst was that people who had high levels of F. prosnitzii had better outcomes from COVID, right? So this is definitely the kind of bacteria you want to cultivate. But how do you get high levels of F. prosnitzii? You got to eat the food F. prosnitzii eat, which fiber. is lots of That's fiber. It so doesn't that mean is the game not, here. Yeah, it's you can't eat. It's a high fiber diet, diet. period. Insoluble, and that doesn't mean that you can't soluble. eat some meat or some bonbons or, I mean, you can have some of that stuff too, but at the end of the day, the I just answer. did a little post- 
I was running in the park this morning and I just, it just, I've had this, you know, sentiment that I wanted to express, which is this idea of you got to put in the miles. Yeah. Like you've got to put in the miles. And maybe I'm influenced by the fact that I'm reading David Goggins' second book. Um, oh, he's so never intense, that guy. He's such a yes. badass. God, so I'm I'm, I'm running in the park and I'm listening to the David Goggins book about how like, you know, mile 110 of his 240 mile race is, you know, Animal. knee is shot, whatever. But I was thinking about how he approaches this whole stay hard thing, right? Which is like, you've got to do the work. So my post this morning was saying like, okay, I'm out here training for a race. I'm not at my ideal weight. I'm slow. I've got a little bit of a cold but I don't have a pill to get me to that finish line of the race next month. I've got to put in the miles and I don't have a pill to give anybody to like abracadabra. Their microbiome is fantastic. I mean, now are there things we can do? Their fiber supplements or probiotics or postbiotics. Yeah. These are little icing on the cake things. Right. But at you the end of the day, the and, Jill, and put in the miles, you know, you're my favorite example. Like you're not going to wake up with Jill's eight pack, 12 pack. <laughs> You're not like by sitting on the couch, taking a supplement at the end of the day, like you've got to put in the work, that foundation of what you eat, what you drink, how you move your body, you know, get some plants in. And it doesn't have to be obsessively so, but if you're not doing those basic things, it's going to be really hard to get to whatever goal, whether the goal is to lose weight, to finish a race, to have a six pack, whatever it is. And so, you know, you have to think about these supplements as just little flourishes, right? This is not Got the it. main thing. This is a little flourish on, on whatever. The icing it, on the cake, but you got to bake the on cake. The cake. Yeah. So to answer that question, which was a great question, can you optimize, you know, gut health for weight loss? You can, in the sense that what you're eating is going to influence what you're growing in your gut and what you're growing in your gut is going to influence how difficult or, or easy it is to lose weight. Right. So it is, it's sort of this, it's all connected, right. This cycle. And we know what these healthy microbes that can be very helpful for helping us maintain a healthy weight, what they like to eat. Now, that being said, I'm shocked at the differences in my patient population of how people respond to different diets, you know, low carb, slow carb, that's you all know, you though. So That's all vegan. you, Doc. That it's is crazy, microbes. right? But you see it too with clients. I oh, mean, I it see is- it too. But but what I have to tell them at the end of the day, especially there's that study about identical twins that have different hormonal responses yes. to food, and it's like, well, there's one there's one option here. But what I, I'm like, listen, even though my ex can eat all of that crap and not gain a pound, and you can't, you know, you'll you'll gain all the weight in the world. The reality is she, you know, she'll pay for it down the road. She doesn't do that, but should she, right? There'd be cancer, there'd be heart disease, there'd be all all the diseases. She just wouldn't be bigger. It might hit her more slowly. She's got an advantage on you, but you should still bad for her at the end of the day. And it's still bad for you. And you know, what we know for a fact is what you say, like, you don't want to overeat period. It's not good for longevity. It's not good for it. You know, your weight over time, you just, you, you want to consume a controlled amount of food, no matter quote, how healthy can eat a bag of cashews and five avocados and use common sense with your food choices. It's like, you got to feed these little microbes, feed them the good stuff. Don't overeat, move your body. It always ends up coming down to that doc, because the nuances that you and I talk about are not controlled specifically by people. In other words, like I can't go take a poop sample from my ex and colonize everybody's gut and give them that magic pill you're talking about. At least uh, 
you know, maybe you can one day, but I have to give them the kind of information you give them of like common sense, still the rules apply, don't overeat. Like there's no other way forward. That's so true. And even with the stool transplant, the fecal microbiota transplantation, FMT, what we find is that it's short lived. So we, oh, you would have to be, yes. you know, literally getting a stool transplant every right day. For it. Yeah, you're going to, of gonna, course, you're going to poop those microbes out. So in order to get meaningful colonization and repopulation, you've got to feed them. You know, yes. it's like if you if you bring some new animal into your home, you got to feed the animal. The animal isn't just <laughs> going to be like, okay, I'm here hanging out. Like, oh no, our cat would got be pissed. Me, right? Yeah, if, if we did not feed him. A, a simple one, a simple one. And then I promise I'll let you go. A lot about gallbladder. And I have some personal curiosity because D had that surgery. So they want to know. And then you mentioned like, well, now gallbladder surgeries have shot up now that it's so simple. And I'm like, son of a bitch, did she not need this out? Because they were freaked out that like that little stone would get into the bile duct and kill her one day so prophylactic well, prophylactic they did it prophylactically because yeah. they're mm -hmm. like you got this stone and we were going to africa and they were like what well, you can't go to africa with that what if it gets stuck you'll die there so it was like all right they took it out yeah they scare you for sure into they it scared the shit out of her and they scared the shit out of me because i i was not pro but it, i'll tell you this though doc she was feeling sick a lot and she feels better now that it's gone and we were trying to figure out what it was forever they found the stones. She feels better. However, there's questions about the long impact on gut health with no gallbladder. And she seems, yeah. D seems better. I, so. Yeah. So what, what I want to say about that, and I want to really thank the, um, the person in your audience who sent that question in, because I thought it was a great question. We, there is no doubt in my mind, we are going to look back, whether it's 10 years, 50 years, hundred years, at this time and be like, we were doing some crazy organ snatching. It was like, oh yeah, you don't need your uterus. Let's take that out. Let's take out your gallbladder appendix. Yeah. And so as we go forward, what we find like the appendix, when I was in medical school 30 years ago in my textbook, it said that appendix is a rudimentary organ yeah, that does not play so. a role in. And it turns out wrong. <gasps> the appendix is where a lot of the extra microbes get stored so that when you have a gut infection or something going on, you can mobilize a lot of these microbes to, to help you. Right. So oh this idea God. that your appendix, is, no idea. There, there's nothing rudimentary in our bodies. Like everything serves a pur purpose for sure. But that being said, yes, we can live without a colon, without a gallbladder, without several of these organs. And there are times when, I mean, to me, when the, when the gallbladder is sick, I'm always interested in, well, how can we make it better? Just like, yes. you know, you when I tore my the, yeah. MCL snowboarding, it's not like, oh, let me just cut off my leg because my MCL is torn. <laughs> like, let's just get rid of that. Right. So we know for a fact that when surgeons could take gallbladders out more easily, the number of gallbladders being removed increased exponentially. And what that meant is that their bar for removing a gallbladder dropped a lot. So in yeah. the case of there's a stone, it's going back and forth. Sometimes we can do things. We can put a stent in to keep it open. Sometimes we can go in there with a little net and remove the stone. And sometimes we need to take the gallbladder out. And so without knowing all the details, you know, I don't like to you know, pull out my retrospectoscope and start criticizing what other doctors did because I wasn't there. And, you know, I like to have some faith that this was necessary. Um, I got it. The function of the gallbladder is to store bile and to release it when you need it. The bile is actually made in the liver. 
Right. And it's stored in the gallbladder. And then when you eat a meal that has fat in it, the gallbladder, there's some receptors that sense the fat content and the gallbladder releases ideally just enough bile to emulsify that fat. And what I mean by emulsify, it's kind of like when you have a plate with oil on it. If you try to just wash it off with water, you're not going to get the oil off. But when you put some soap on it, the yep. soap emulsifies the oil. It basically binds the oil analogy. molecules, puts surrounds yeah. it so that you can get the oil off. Well, that's what bile does to help the fat get absorbed through the gut lining. The fat can't get absorbed on its own without the bile. So the gallbladder releases just the right amount of bile. So when you don't have a gallbladder, you're, you still have bile because your liver's still making it, but it's not being stored. And so what are some of the problems we see? Some of the problems we see are diarrhea because now sometimes the bile salts are in constant motion and being secreted all the time. And we can usually treat that pretty easily with a bile salt binder called cholestyramine or cholested. I usually have my patients take either the powder form or the capsules a couple before their biggest meals, half an hour before that usually solves the problem. So there are things like that that we can do. We do have to watch the fat in our diet if you don't have a yeah. gallbladder because you can have some fat malabsorption, but you can usually you you can usually figure things out and and be be fine or at least, you know, not have a lot of symptoms. But I always want to talk to people before they have their gallbladder out cuz I always want to make sure I'm like let's oh, let's really okay. do some inquiry and see yes. because why it, it it's a critical digestive organ, right? It's not like, oh yeah, you can just, you know, get rid of it. No big deal. Once again, you have, um, your brilliance has uh, shined the light on so many different topics and we are all very grateful. And unfortunately for you, doc, we have two more segments. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I could do so this all day. Sending in those questions. If we didn't get to your question, we're going to get, we have two more opportunities to do so, but I strongly recommend get gut bliss get the microbiome solution, get the antiviral gut. And if you're like, okay, you just said three books, go online and read about them and pick the one that you think is the most appropriate because each is really unique and special and has different information that may be more important to you at this time. Am I saying that right, doc? Absolutely. No, that's exactly right. I mean, it is it's such a privilege to be able to put these books out. I'm so grateful to my team at Penguin Random House. And they're all they're all different. Gutless was sort of like my love letter to women who have GI problems to say, okay, I'm going to take you, you know, from north to south, from, from a mouth to anus, all the way through the gut, explaining what's going on and why, what might be wrong in your gut. Microbiome Solution was a deep dive into the microbiome. The bloat cure, number three, was a little quickie, 101 things that bloat you, A to Z. Each one's just a little page. Oh. It's a cliff notes. And then this last so one, the antiviral though. gut, was was really my my contribution to the public health efforts around the pandemic to say to people like vaccines, masking, social distancing, this stuff is all really important. But here are some things you can do to be a healthier yeah. host, to be more resilient, to make sure that if you do get infected, you don't have a bad outcome or to decrease your chances of a bad outcome. So they're all a little bit different. They've all been and not really just with COVID, though. Let me mention we, when we covered that book, it's everything. We were talking about everything from STDs yeah, to the common absolutely. cold to COVID. It's like, hence the term antiviral, like killing the bad guys across the board. Abs absolutely. And, and here's the thing, you know, in the messaging that I want to remind people, we have an incredible amount of control over our health. We don't have infinite control and some people are just dealt a bad hand. That's for yeah. sure. Whether on a genetic basis or they've had a 
environmental toxic exposure that's really knocked them off their feet. But there is so much that you can do to improve your health, to improve your gut health and to improve your overall health. And that's always my message. I want people to feel in control. I don't want people to feel scared. And in order to not feel scared, you got to be informed. You got to know how all this stuff works. So that's the goal. Doc, where can they get more? Websites, socials, Website, uh, robinchutcan.com or follow me on Instagram at gutbliss. You're the best. I adore you. I worship you. Thank you so much (laughs) for your time. And I look forward to our next conversation. Definitely. Hey guys, if you're enjoying the show, do us a big favor and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts because it just helps us get the show out there get heard by more people. We'd really appreciate it.